the focus of of machine learning specifically is that instead of a human adjusting the algorithm and, and, and writing a program and saying the algorithm should do this, oh, that didn't work, I'll tweak the algorithm. Instead, what you do is you program it through the data. So you'll, you'll say, look, the model works well. It doesn't work as well in this particular scenario. My solution is not to fiddle with the algorithm. My solution is to label more data in that scenario so that the model can learn from it. And that's it's a really, really big shift in mindset, particularly for people who worked with algorithms for a long time. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. The voice you heard right at the start of the episode, that was Dr. Michael Bewley. And he is the Senior Director of AI Systems at a company called Nearmap. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about aerial mapping. But this is not just a podcast episode about capturing images from planes. It's a podcast episode about what it is possible to do with those images you capture from planes, the challenges you face along the way and what the future of this might look like. Hey Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining me today, all the way from, from sunny, sunny Australia. Today we're gonna to be talking about aerial mapping. You work for a company called Nearmap, and I think now would be a great time for you to just briefly introduce yourself to the audience. So who are you? How did you get involved in aerial mapping? And, and after that, perhaps you can move on and talk about what Nearmap is doing, some of the processes you're involved in, and yeah, we'll just let the conversation flow from there. Sure. I'm Mike Bewley. I'm Senior Director of AI Systems at Nearmap. Wow, that was, that was a multi-part question. Let me, let me try and wind back. I think what led me to Nearmap, I guess, was maybe the first bit. I mean, by background, I'm, I'm not really a, a geospatial person. I mean, I was, I was one of those kids who always loved maps and things, but uh, there's plenty of those at Nearmap. Uh, it was a really interesting set of experiences which led me into this career path. I started off actually, undergrad was engineering and, and physics. And then I went into uh, an Australian technology company called Cochlear, which does medical implants. So helping the deaf to hear with uh, electronics and, and software and, and complex audio processing. So I worked there for a while, uh, which was fascinating, really seeing what world-leading technology looks like from the inside. Then I had always been interested in data and machine learning, and I decided it was time to go back and do a PhD. I certainly didn't want to do a highly theoretical one. I wanted to do something where I could make a difference, uh, work on lots of data and do something practical. That led me to a really interesting place called the Australian Centre for Field Robotics, where I worked with the Autonomous Underwater Vehicle Group. And there you basically, you know, take a robot, throw it off the back of a boat, and it will do a similar thing automatically to what aerial imagery is today. So it'll map a survey of the seafloor. And I was trying to help these, uh, these poor marine scientists who were sitting there tagging thousands and thousands of images manually. I was trying to help them automate that process because it's, it's not fun to sit there all day and work out which species of coral is in that corner of the image. There, I went into banking for a little bit, more about working with kind of big enterprise data, looking at how things work in a large organization. And then from there, I, I ended up at Nearmap. So it's, it's a really interesting confluence of things where it's, uh, you know, Nearmap is a, is a deep technology company like Cochlear. We, we design and build the camera systems in-house all the way through to the software and processing and and, and front-end work. So it's, it's full end-to-end technology here. We work with a lot of enterprise customers and give them data. So it's, it's great to have an understanding of that. And, you know, the PhD is it's just so similar. It's just that that was underwater and, and this is on land. And the scale and impact of this is, is just enormously larger. So again, we're talking about aerial imagery here. We're talking about aerial mapping. And I remember the very first conversation we had, you talked about your business model. And without being too sort of sales pitchy here, could you explain the business model to, to us, please? Yeah, so Nearmap was founded, what, 
maybe a dozen years ago or so. And it was really founded on a unique technology, which was a custom designed camera system that allowed planes to fly higher and faster, much higher and much faster than aerial capture normally permits. And that gave greatly increased efficiency. Now you've got to decide what to do with that efficiency. Now, what the team back then decided was worth trying was, well, what happens if we use that increased efficiency to fly ahead of time? We'll just go and fly all the major cities in Australia and we'll do it multiple times a year. And then we'll let people sign up and they can get access to it whenever they need. And that's very different from, I guess, the standard aerial imagery model where you pay for a survey because they're so costly up front. Whereas here, you're leveraging those economies of scale and, and allowing all these people to access aerial imagery who'd never even considered aerial imagery before. Uh, you know, they're doing it through a web application with some basic tools in it. And they can do things in a business sense. They can get their job done remotely in a way that they hadn't before. But they're not, you know, they're not your classic kind of GIS customer who, who understands map transforms and how aerial imagery is created. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about your customer base later on. But for right now, I'd like to know more about these aerial surveys that you conduct. You talked about flying further and, and, and faster than ever before, these specialized camera systems that, that you have developed. Could you talk to us about that? What, what does further, faster and specialized mean for you? How, how is it different from what other people are doing? We've been through multiple iterations of camera systems over the last decade. Uh, and I think what we typically quote is we think we're about four times more efficient than current on the shelf camera systems, which is a pretty big impact when you do that at scale. And what that has allowed is that today we cover 90% of the Australian population up to six times a year. We're expanding our capture program in the US from 70 to 80% of the population next year, at least once a year. And we cover Canada and New Zealand as well with really a, a, a small number of planes compared to what you'd expect. In this case, are we talking about RGB imagery or are we talking about LiDAR or are we talking about different spectrums? Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, the very first camera systems we used were designed from off-the-shelf RGB cameras, but now we're, we're much more custom than that. Uh, but it's, it's still focused on RGB. And we have a whole, whole suite of products relating to 3D, but that 3D is created through a technique called structure from motion, where you're looking at multiple aerial images from different angles that overlap using pose information and then doing uh, some pretty complex uh, vision work to understand you know, how, how those sit relative to each other. From that, you can create a 3D model. And then we have a digital surface model, which is kind of a, I guess it's a raster map. Some, some call it a digital elevation model. It's a raster map of heights around the place. And then more recently, we've got a digital terrain model, which, which is basically the same thing, except you scrape off the trees in the building. So oftentimes when I talk to companies that are capturing large amounts of imagery like what you're doing, a big part of what they do is object detection. And I'm imagining this is what you are involved with as well. If that's the case, could you talk to us a little bit about that? What, what kinds of objects are you detecting based on this really high resolution aerial imagery that you are collecting? Yeah, that's a good question. So yes, absolutely, object detection is a thing. Now, a lot of people will run object detection kind of as needed. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty difficult and expensive to do machine learning that works at scale. You can get a demo going pretty, pretty easily and you, can, and you can make something that works in, in a small area in a relatively straightforward way. But what we actually do is we do AI at the same scale that we do imagery. So uh, these days, every single survey that we conduct, that's multiple surveys a day, so it's thousands of square kilometers a day, we're running uh, our AI system to detect dozens and dozens of objects. I think we've got, in GIS terms, I think we've got about 35 feature classes that we deliver behind an API at the moment based all on that RGB imagery, plus machine learning, plus a whole complex set of post-processing. 
when you think about detecting those those objects and creating those feature classes, my understanding of object detection is there's a couple of different approaches to it. You could do labeling, for example, or tagging images. What approach do you use in terms of segmenting the pixels into features? Yeah, so our system is really founded at the moment on a technique called uh, semantic segmentation. Uh, and what that does is you take an image as input, so an RGB image, and for each pixel of RGB image, you're calculating a pixel of meaning. So for our building footprint layer, we've got one pixel per RGB pixel, and we're talking about five to seven centimeters per pixel here. That's re really, really high-res uh, aerial imagery. And we, when we produce a map of pixels that basically say, what's the probability that this pixel is roof? Or what's the probability that this pixel is tree? Or one of any other of, of dozens, of, dozens of feature classes? And then we do, we, do, we do all the vectorization, we do post-processing cleanup, we run, run additional machine learning models on top to produce analysis-ready data products that are, that are fit for quite a wide range of customer uses. This is probably going to sound like an incredibly naive question, but when you talk about labeling each pixel as what is the probability of it being a tree or a roof or a car or some other kind of surface, does that mean each pixel can only be one thing? Because uh, I'm imagining a roof would be, it could be associated with a house. So if building footprints was something that you were collecting as well, do you have these kind of parent-child relationships with, with the pixels? There's a problem formulation in machine learning called multi-class. And that's when you have, you know, you might have 10 classes and the model will, will tell you which of the 10 things it is. That's not what we do. We actually do something called multi-label, where each of these output channels, and it really is a, a raster output channel, is totally independent from the others. If you've got trees overhanging roof, because of the way we do our human expert labeling, actually, the model tends to predict roof overlapping with like the, the roof that sticks out underneath the tree really in, to a similar extent that you would guess as a human. So you get in those locations, you obviously get a pixel of we are really confident this pixel is roof, but we also are really confident that this pixel is tree. Okay, so if, if I'm understanding this correctly, so each model that you run is looking for something different and it's looking at the image in isolation. So it doesn't know that you've already classified that pixel as being a house or a car or something else. Is, am I understanding this correctly? Close, close. Uh, there's, I guess with, with deep learning, that really is the foundation of what we do. We wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. We actually still have one global model. So that's quite a challenge in and of itself because you're, you're trying to train one model to take in an input image and then learn things about that image that can solve multiple problems, right? So initially it kind of learns edges and textures and things and how those compose into larger features. And at the very output of the model, you can basically have multiple outputs and you can have one output that says, you know, switch on if, there's, if you're confident that there's building or switch on if you're confident that there's trees. So it is it's still one unified model, but right at the very end, it kind of shares, shares all, the, uh, all the information up to that point. It makes decisions uh, on each layer independently. It's, it's, it's quite amazing the, the level of R&D that we've leveraged from the, the world of deep learning on imagery. So if you look at all the, all the major companies doing deep learning on imagery, not in the geospatial space, but you know, all the images out there on the internet, it's, it's really a, a revolution that's been continually happening since about 2012. But we basically piggyback on that, and then we build our own custom deep learning model architectures. They leverage a little bit the fact that it's geospatial data. We know, we know more about it than just random pictures of a cat on the internet because we know, we know about the scale and, and we can choose our image sizes and all sorts of uh, extra bits of information. 
Yeah, and, and just to clarify here, we're, we're not you're not doing any of this based on uh, other data sets. So this is all being derived based on the RGB images that you are capturing. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, actually, it's it's fully in house. So we do we use our our own uh, imagery that we've processed, or that or that the the vision team has processed and prepared. It's the same images that our customers can view. Uh, we take that as input. We've got our own custom labeling tool that is a modified version of our of our map browser tool. So Nimap has a, this, uh, this tool that, I guess, non-GIS experts can go and explore the world. They can look at multiple dates, multiple angles, 3D and so on. And they can, you know, draw pictures and, and, and do projects and that kind of thing. And we have actually a whole lot of labelers who will label that imagery on specific jobs. And they'll label, you know, is, are there trees in this image? Are there rusty roofs? Are there light poles? Are there power poles? Just to give you a flavor of the different sorts of things. So they label them. And that, that's an in-house team, an in-house tool. And then that goes into training the model, which is, again, something that we've, we've designed ourselves. And then we create the output. So, yeah, it's, it's purely uh, NearMap data, which is, which is a really exciting thing to kind of go all in on, on what NearMap produces because it means you can optimize for it. You're not trying to make it so it will work on any aerial imagery data or satellite data or, or, or what have you. We don't really care about the works in other data set. We can really just optimize for every single thing we know about our own data which is quite a lot, obviously, given we've been, we've been working with our aerial imagery for, for a decade or more. But I think, too, if you were to put a, a LiDAR on some of these planes, for example, or collect other kinds of, of data while you're flying over the area as well, I mean, I, I guess you would also know a lot about that data. Is it simply for the sake of simplicity that you just collect RGB data, or is there something else here that, that I'm not seeing? So I guess the reason why we've, we've stuck with RGB imagery in our, in our camera systems is that that's what our customers have asked for. So it's this is all built on the back of a really nicely functioning business that you know sells access to aerial imagery for customers, so they don't have to go on site, right? They can they can remotely inspect and do things uh, without turning up, which has been great in the last couple of years. So that's what's been built on, and there, there hasn't been need for for lidar or anything else there. And then you pair that with the the advent of of modern machine learning, and you know all, all these other groups that have poured. Goodness knows how much money in, in, into researching, you know, your, your big tech companies, your, your big governments. Most pictures don't have depth information and LIDAR and things attached. So all of that research has been about how do you get the most possible information out of an RGB image. There's companies that will say humans reason about the world pretty successfully without things like LIDAR, that, you know, all you really have to do is we use our eyes, which are approximately RGB sensors, and we can figure out things like what object is that and how far away is it. Uh, you know, accurately enough for me to to reason about. So we do the same thing, and we find that that's enough for us to uh, do some really powerful stuff. And our tree layer, for example, uh, people compare it to near infrared and that kind of thing that's that's been traditionally used because the the deep learning models derive information from the imagery texture, and you know you can almost see the leaves at five to seven centimeters per pixel. So yeah, I, I guess we're we're leveraging a huge huge amount of research and building on the back of that that enables great results, fantastic results, even just from RGB. I believe you, you use the word texture there. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? What, what do you mean when you say texture? Yeah, so I, I guess the texture of, of an image is in the same way that you'd have the texture of a, you know, a, something that you touch with your hands. You might have something which is rough or smooth. When it comes to imagery, texture is more about color and the color variation. And I guess, I guess you'd call it the fine scale patterns. So we do roof material as, as one, of our, one of our things. and Whereas some people might use spectral information to tell the difference between a metal roof and a tile roof, you can see with your eyes the, the texture where you've got these linear features for the corrugated 
iron roofs. And you can see with tiles, you can see this nice texture of those, those neat rows of tiles. And that's even different from shingles, which we can discriminate from really quite effectively uh, because shingles don't have that. It, it's still kind of a patchwork texture, but it's, it doesn't have that nice regularity of, of a tile roof. Uh, so it, it always comes back to, as, as we tell our customers who ask, if you can reliably spot it in our imagery as a human, the state of the art with deep learning, which is where we're at, is that you can do it with a model. So you've been doing a really great job of sort of weaving in uh, examples of these different feature classes that you're collecting. I, I believe at the start you said about 35 different feature classes, so different kinds of objects that you can detect based on the imagery that you're, that you're collecting at the moment. But you also said that RGB, one of the reasons why you use it is because that's what your customers were asking for, that they wanted to be able to see and monitor things without actually going physically to the place. They wanted to be able to see it. So I'm curious, when you think about creating new products or so detecting new feature classes, is it a function of what people are asking for or is it just a function of, of what you can do in terms of the, the, okay, now your model is better, now we can do this, so you add those things to them. I'd be, I'd be curious to know what is sort of pushing the development of new detectors, being able to create new feature classes. Oh, look, it's, it's very, very much customer driven. We've got customers in a range of industries there's a lot in both the local government space and the insurance space, uh, particularly that are using our, our AI data. So they, they have long, very long laundry lists of things that they'd love to see out there in the world. So we, we take from them and prioritize, obviously, and then we add them to the model. So what's an example? I mean, roof condition is something we added recently due to customer requests. So things like structural damage, roof staining and ponding and rusting people really trying to work out what, what's happening to a roof. And we've talked a lot about RGB imagery and, what you can get out of that. But we also use our 3D information, which yes, is derived from RGB imagery, but we now do things like, you know, count the number of stories out on a house or measure its height or measure the, measure the dominant roof pitch automatically. And we do that through machine learning on our 2D imagery and then actually machine learning on our, on our 3D mesh, different kinds of models that happen. I guess if, if, you're, in, if you're a GIS person, you're probably used to running various algorithms on, on your software of choice. You might process with one algorithm and then the next one, and the next one. We do that at massive scale. And by massive scale, we're talking, I think we're up to billions of, of features uh, that we've produced on millions of square kilometers worth of five to seven centimeter per pixel image. So it's the, the industrial scale machine learning is, is the real challenge. We've not really hit walls that, that relate to the nature of the sensor that we have because the R&D is it's so far out there. And our imagery capture program is tuned for what our customers care about. So if our customers need to be able to spot something, that's what our imagery capture program is designed for. And then because the machine learning models can basically, if you train them well enough, basically mimic a human's ability to recognize something in an image, that means we can basically achieve what we need to achieve with our models. But the, yeah, it's the industrial scale stuff that's really fascinating. That is fascinating. I was going to ask you about this, this later on in the conversation. And the, the question I'm going to fire out now and <laughs> we'll see how you react. So the question was going to be, a lot of companies are constantly looking to improve, make things better, make things more efficient. And if you had the choice between two things, either improve the sensor, collect better data or improve the, the model, which one would have the greatest impact? But it sounds like what you're saying is the model is the processing at an industrial scale, which would actually have the biggest impact in terms of improving your products and services. Yeah. I, I mean, our sensor system has been fine-tuned over a long period of time, more than a decade. We are still improving that. So there's, we've got another camera that is just even worlds ahead of our current best-in-class coming. So 
we don't stop on that front where we're still pedal to the metal on R&D for our sensor systems. But at the same time, our machine learning models uh, continue to advance, adapt. So we, we, run, we run at such incredible scale that it gives us some advantages that are not possible otherwise. So for example, if I run a survey, I can then go and find areas in that survey where, I don't know, swimming pools overlap with water. And that might be something unexpected or, or a solar panel is, is visible on, on a tennis court or something. We can look for these automatically because we, we process these vector maps at massive scale. And then we can use that to improve the model because we can get the humans to look at that and say, is that weird because the world is a weird place? And everyone who's involved in GIS and has looked at lots of, you know, lots of examples of the world know that there's some crazy stuff out there. So they can either validate and say, yes, that is indeed there. That's a swimming pool on a cruise liner in a, in a water body. That was an example we saw the other day. Or they might say, no, that's, that's actually incorrect. The model's got it wrong. Uh, so you're really lasering in on any corner case that doesn't work to label more. And that, those labels feed into your, into your system. And so, some, I guess, of your listeners might have built models themselves by, by hand labeling some data. The scale that we're labeling at, I can't remember how long ago it was now, a little while ago now, we, you know, we cracked past the, the million images worth of labeled data uh, mark. So it's, it's, it's pretty big scale of, of labeling, but you're scaling that up orders of magnitude. You, know, you might at that scale say, well, why don't you just label it all? Well, we've got tens of petabytes of imagery already and, and we're increasing our capture programs. So you need, you need these models to automatically scale that up. Okay, so it's, it sounds like we've moved on and we're talking almost a little bit about ground truthing now where you're, where you're looking for problem areas, edge cases. So you're creating the, the, these vectors based on the objects that you're collecting and say, well, can the solar panel exist in a tennis court? I think was the example that you gave. And if you ran into a situation where that was the case, then you would have a human look at it. So this makes perfect sense to me. Then you begin to adapt the model. Does this make sense? Okay, yes, it does. Add it to the model as the labeled image, as, as something that the model should be, should be looking at in the future. What about change detection, though? Because if you're constantly changing the model, constantly updating the model, when I look at change over time, how do I know that I'm actually seeing change in the environment over time or just changes that you have made to, to your model? That's a great question. That's a really good question. So change detection is, I, I've heard it actually a few, a few of the podcasts that, that come up on your show, people talk about change detection as this, this great unsolved and challenging problem. And, and it, it is, it's really tough. And that's basically because any difference between, you know, like if you're doing change between two different dates and you're trying to understand what the, the differences are, you've got both the errors and, and the meaningful change. And so the meaningful change is the signal and the errors are the noise. And quite often the signal you're looking for is, is maybe even lower than the noise unless you have really impeccable quality. So we have firstly focused on incredibly high degree of accuracy with our models. So you get results that you just can't get by hand labeling stuff yourself when you're, when you're more than a million worth, uh, images worth of labeled data. Now, if you're looking for whether there's been a change in the model and you want to do change detection, we can just run our model on old data. So any of our historical surveys over the past 10 years, to an extent, just snap our fingers and run our latest machine learning model on it. And we've got a whole, uh, we've got quite a sophisticated versioning system for our models. So I think we're up to Gen 4 Lightning Bolt 1.1 now as our, as our latest version. So our customers can really see the, the provenance of where that data has come from. It's not just random changes and, and fixing things. It's, we've had to build in quite a lot of maturity that uh, I guess I, I certainly didn't appreciate at the very start of this journey four or five years ago. But now, yeah, you've got these nuanced versions in, in the data. You can run change detection. You know, you might want to match. People are often matching season for season. So you might want to go 
leaf off to leaf off or leaf on to leaf on, depending on your preference, one year to the next. But we've had people do calculate changes in, in percentage tree cover over, over 10 years. So they say, I want to give, give, me, give me data at 2020 and go back in time. And can you give me the 2010 data as well? And because we're just running it on our imagery, we've been capturing consistently since then, we can do that. And then at the moment, actually, we've got our more advanced customers uh, calculating changes themselves. Does this all mean that you have to be relatively precise or relatively consistent, I should say, in terms of when those surveys happen? I think you talked about leaf on, leaf off. So we're talking about capturing images of the surface where they're not covered by vegetation and where they are covered by vegetation. What does that like preferential window of time look like? Are we talking each survey is captured within two weeks of a specific time period or three weeks, four weeks, five weeks? That's a really good question. I would defer to the knowledge of our learned uh, survey operations team. These guys are absolutely ninjas when it comes to understanding weather and seasons and, and logistics because they're, they're basically uh, having to ship these, these cameras and planes all around the country to, to chase the right weather, the right season. So it's, it's quite different from something like satellite data, which is it's happening regularly, but you might get clouds, you might you know, get the wrong season and the person at the end of doing the analysis has to work out what the right stuff is. Whereas I, I've been amazed at how, how few clouds there are in our imagery. I thought that was going to be a huge problem when I turned up, but they just don't fly the planes if it's too cloudy, unless they really have to. They're trying to choose the optimal lighting conditions to fly. And then in the US, for example, they're chasing the, the leaf front as the, you know, the, the last of the snows melt. And just before those first buds appear on the trees, They've got this fleet of planes that's chasing that across the country. It's absolutely amazing, I have to say. I, I was During our pre-interview conversation, I was completely blown away by some of the work that you're doing. So you mentioned this 35 feature classes that you can currently detect and, and segment. I'm assuming there's a lot more objects out there that you'd really like to be able to detect and, and segment. Can you give us an understanding of, of where this is going, what the future of, of these feature classes might look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think where, where the modern deep learning revolution began was with this competition called ImageNet. And that's one model which produces a thousand different outputs, right? It recognizes a thousand different things. So that's, that's my sort of benchmark in the back of my head of where I want to go with this. And the really interesting challenge there is how do you, how do you scale up the definitions? Right? So on the one hand, you can label swimming pools and it, it should be obvious what a swimming pool is, except you've got to think about questions like, do you include above ground and below ground swimming pools? What if the swimming pool is empty or half under construction? What if the swimming pool is covered? What if it's like a jacuzzi or a hot tub or one of those temporary paddling pools or maybe a garden pond? And if you do this right, the machine learning models can actually learn all those nuances, but they can only do that if the humans are consistent with all those nuances. So we've actually just hired what we call an AI ontologist. Her full-time role is coming up with new definitions and thinking about how they relate to each other and the existing ones. So if you want to know what a swimming pool is, go to our website on, on docs.nearmap.com and, and you, can see, you can see our definitions there. And it's what does it include? What does it exclude? And we've got, I guess for our labeling team, we've got a multi-page training manual for how you label each feature class. And uh, it's, it gets really nitty-gritty and complex. And another good example might be if you're labeling roofs, is a caravan a roof, like a, a mobile home? Maybe not if it's on the road. What if it's permanently parked in a location? There's just so many fascinating corner cases that come up in the real world. So you've got to have a way of scaling the way you deal with those if you really want to get great results. This might sound like a, a really naive question, but is, is there any sort of standard definition of a swimming pool? Are, are there 
commonly understood definitions for these things out there in the world in ontology that we could borrow from and say, okay, well, this is how the internet understands a swimming pool, for example, and sort of build on top of that, or at least have something that you can relate back to? Or do you need to create these definitions from the ground up as you see them? We'd love the former to be true. And there are actually lots of ontologies out there, but they're, they're really specified to the depth that's necessary. Uh, so what we actually do is we, we interview our customers, we talk to them and they'll tell us, you know, we want swimming pools. Uh, and we say, well, well, what do you mean by that? And how are you going to use it? And it's really, the question is how you're going to use it is what drives the way we define it. But we, we find that we can get a lot, of, a lot of commonality between different use cases. But then sometimes there's another use case and we'll just have to create another slightly different feature class to match that use case. So it's a fascinatingly nuanced problem that few have the patience for, but personally, I love it. So using this approach, if we had endless time and endless resources, would we ever run out of things that we could define and capture? I don't think so, because we keep inventing new physical things. And really our, our mission in, in my particular team is we're trying to create this rich and accurate semantic picture of the world that represents what's there and that can be used for many different things. And there's just so many objects and people keep inventing new architectures. Solar panels are changing. Solar hot water systems, there's new types coming out. There's just so much new stuff and so much nuance. You have to decide, do you, does it semantically match the existing definition and should it be added to that? Or does it break that, you know, that semantic link and it has to be a new thing in its own right? And both things can occur. Do you see anything? Is, there, is anybody doing any work on the, some kind of standardization of this? Imagine the, the potential if, if these kinds of definitions were interoperable. If I could take a swimming pool from you or a swimming pool from someone else and know that, okay, well, th these things are the same. Yeah, I, I guess that's one type of, I guess, interoperability you could get. What I'm hoping to achieve is that because all of our products for all of our different customer segments are derived from that same source of truth, right? We've got one definition for, for tree canopy that we've got local governments using, we've got insurers using, and it's, it's the same model in Australia, the US, New Zealand, and Canada. And if you have all these different people involved in you know, urban planning and organizing your local government and construction and, and environmental groups and researchers, and, and all these people are actually referring to that same source of truth, it could save so many problems. But I, I guess to, to solve these problems, you have to do them at scale. And there's not really anyone else doing it at, at this sort of scale at multiple points in time on, on hundreds and hundreds of cities. Early on in the conversation, you talked about, I think it was rust detection or, or damage detection on roofs. Is this a feature class for itself? Or is this, do you look at the feature classes that you are creating and then say, okay, we're based on this knowledge where these things overlap. That's where we, we have damage on the roofs. So the roof, roof conditions. So we, we bundle up our, our feature classes into packs, basically AI packs. And and the roof condition one at the moment is five different feature classes. Let me see if I can remember them. We've got ponding, we've got rusting, we've got temporary repair, we've got structural damage, and we've got staining, so dis discolorational staining on, on shingle and tile. So if you, if you pull from our API, so we've got an API that allows you to send in a polygon and you get back up to a square kilometre at a time of this vector map that's been pre-computed. What you get back in that payload is you'll get a roof uh, as a polygon It'll have attributes that tell you what percentage of that roof is covered by each of these things. So, you know, the roof is 10% structural damage, 20% ponding, and maybe there's 10% rusting because there's a little metal extension. It'll tell you how many square meters of each. And then you also even get the, the features themselves of these. So you see where the little blobs of rusting are, or if it's tree overhang, you know, you see, is this one large section of tree overhang on the roof or is it 
little tiny blobs all around the edges. And I think the interesting thing for, for a lot of our enterprise customers is that allows them to craft whatever data they want straight from the vector map and they turn that into columns in a spreadsheet. And it's, it's just so powerful when you go from, from that vector map as you wish for your particular use case and then you turn that into spreadsheet, which maybe you feed into a machine learning model to estimate risk or something like that. I couldn't help but think when you're talking about the really powerful thing here is that I can take that and turn it into a spreadsheet. Because for years, we've been fighting the other way, right, in the geospatial world. Make your data visible. The magic here is that we can make it visible and we can layer it and we can align it based on its spatial relationships and do some analysis on it. And it's interesting to hear that you say the magic is that we go back the other way. That's the magic for customers. The magic for us is, is actually around alignment. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was, I was wanting, to, uh, wanting to talk about that a little because I know geospatial data sets are often interesting in terms of alignment, trying to pick things on the same date or that have been done with the same map projection or whatever. So if you think about what we've got, we've got these aerial imagery surveys, which are really, really quite accurate in terms of position on the ground. And the AI lines up perfectly with them because it is produced by them. So if you want to plop your little roof outline on top of your, on top of your imagery, you see it perfectly aligned or your trees, they just line up perfectly because it's the same date and it's the same pixels. And then all these different feature classes line up with each other because you're not trying to merge multiple data sets. And then that's done in a consistent way across, gosh, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of cities in the US, for example, and you know, captured multiple times a year just this, with this consistent format. Are you seeing the same kind of consistent and accurate alignment between surveys as well? Yeah, the, the, again, the vision team works pretty hard at that. They use ground control points in various situations. The camera systems are actually really, really good. Uh, I, I can't remember the specs to hand, but the, you know, the, the pixels are five to seven centimetres per pixel, and I think it's some, some tens of centimetres in terms of how much shift there is. So there'll be, there'll be a little shift, but, but not a lot, because they can, when they process the next server, they can look at the server they've already done and, and make sure there's a level of alignment. That's really a, a lot what we play on. It's, it's that we don't do these sort of bespoke things which stand separately but are designed to be used separately. We, we capture very consistently. And then you make that available to customers. So, you know, local government, you've got people doing, looking at trees and, and trying to understand how, how the built environment interacts with the natural one, looking at heat islands. You've got them trying to figure out uh, which areas have changed so they can see, you know, update their records for, you know, land tax and all that sort of stuff. And that, that exact same vector map that sits under the hood is being used by, you know, insurance to look at the trees for bushfire risk, or it's being used by researchers to understand better how we can quantify what happens around heat islands, for example. So you mentioned heat islands a couple of times there. Now, at least in my understanding, this is not an object we can segment and, and capture as such. It seems to me that it's more a function of the materials that are used in different objects. Does this mean that you can segment uh, materials that objects are made out of? We can segment materials insofar as you can observe them as a human on the imagery. So we do, we do tiles versus shingles versus metal for roof types. And we do concrete and asphalt and, and lawn grass. So, you know, impervious surface modeling, which people use for stormwater runoff and things like that. We do quite a lot with materials. Obviously, there's, there's a limit, but that limit is really the same as, as what your limit is with your eyes. So I think you've got a lot of, a lot of lo local governments who are trying to move from, from these hand digitized maps that are are really brilliantly accurate, but as a result, they're hard work and you know they get very out of date. They're trying to keep up to date and they're trying to compare what's what's happening in their area over time and at scale 
And the only way they can do that is with automation. Yeah, so, so let's talk about automation. Let's talk about AI for a little bit. This, this is a huge part of, of what you are doing. You are not the only company doing this, the only organization interested in, in using AI in this way. And I, I think years ago, we often heard people talking about big data. And now we just talk about, you know, we just talk about data, essentially. There's still lots of data around and it's getting bigger, but, but now we just take it for granted. It's, it's data. Yeah, you have a lot of data. We all have a lot of data. Do you think we're going to reach the same point with AI, with, with deep learning, with, with these kinds of models that you're developing, where we don't talk about them as being AI as such, we just talk about them as part of data analysis? Yeah, we're doing data analysis. And of course, we're using AI. Perhaps. I, I guess for, for an end user, it, it doesn't really matter or it shouldn't matter that it was produced by AI or drawn by hand. For our customers, they just want a vector map of their area. Uh, so uh, however that comes... What they want to know is, is it fit for purpose? So with automation, we have to reach that level that it's, it's fit for purpose. And they get some advantages, you know, things like, because our output system is, is fully automated, we don't, we don't hand touch up any of our output results. And what that means is, is you can get the data really quite fast. And yeah, look, I mean, we do work with pretty large data. I mean, as a company with tens of petabytes of imagery, there's some quite interesting scale problems that we have here that, uh, that you don't often get. It's about a lot more than scale. It's about the nuances of getting the system right, which is why my, my area is called AI systems. It's not just about, can I train a machine learning model? It's about how do I get really clean labeled data? And how do, I, how do I feed that to a model and train that reliably and robustly? And how do I evaluate that model? How do I run that model at scale? And how do I improve it? How do I do all that with lots of feedback loops? And there's really quite a lot of complexity in, in how the different parts interact with each other. And that's really where the challenge is. So I think people like us are interested in exactly those problems that you're describing there. I find it fascinating. How do we do this at scale? How do we do this consistently? How do we make this better over time? I think it's, it's a really, really complex problem to solve. And again, I find it fascinating. Is AI, is machine learning, are these models, are they ever part of your promotion? Like, do you need to use those words to help your customers understand that, hey, this is amazing what we're doing here. This is reliable. Do you use those words or do you use some other kinds of words that makes it easier for them to understand? I guess what, what I'm getting at here is I'm trying to understand the connection between all this magic and what your customers actually want, what the people that are buying this actually want, what the market says or wants. I mean, the product is called Nearmap AI. And so we, we do use that term. But uh, you know, we, we also talk about you know, rich HD vector maps and uh, we talk about what the data is and what the customer can get out of it because that's what matters to them. Uh, it, it does make a difference that it's AI generated because it, it may alter their expectations of where the data comes from. Uh, a lot of it is, is things which they're not used to being possible, like having a, you know, an automatic flag of how many stories a building is on every single building in your local government area and being able to get that on, on any date you want. If you've got in your head that this is being done by humans, you say that that's silly, that's can't reasonably do that at scale, and I wouldn't be able to order historical date because you know that's that's a luxury that is we can't afford whereas with automation we can run at scale so it has some different properties which is why it's useful to talk about that a little bit and i, I guess it's exciting i mean it, everyone loves to talk about ai and think about the possibilities that it's opening up and uh, it certainly is opening up new possibilities for our customers so i think it's reasonable to use the term do you think people have a good understanding of the limitations of of ai and, and the possibilities of it probably not on the whole I mean, no one does because this is still, it's a fairly nascent field that is developing. But 
we sometimes find customers asking, well, well how accurate is it? Can, can you give me a number? And that's really hard to do correctly and without context. So, so what we prefer to do is to say, why don't you take a look? Here's, here's a sample from your area in the context that matters for you. And you can see if it's fit for purpose. And that's really what matters at the end of the day. They don't, it doesn't really matter what the, what the numerical accuracy is. Uh, what matters to them is that it works in their particular local government area, for example, that it detects trees as, as well as they want it to detect. Yeah, it, it's, it's really usage and, and use case focused. We, we try to steer people away from thinking about, you know, well, what model architecture do you use or what are your performance numbers? Because those, those are less relevant than what does the data look like in your area? Here, have a look. So, we, you know, we allow people to visualize it and explore it in the map browser tool. Uh, and that visualization, the primary purpose of that, that it serves is to help them understand how this, how this works, what kinds of things might get missed. Like if you've got a swimming pool, we've just got a little corner of blue sticking out from under trees. We'll often get that because the models work really well, but we might miss it or we might get it with a lower confidence score. And, and customers can see that when they visualize it and they, they sort of build an intuition for how the, the AI system works and then that allows them to make use of the data. I think that is so smart because it, it, it kind of reminds me of what Google Maps did for us all. It put us at the center of the map and showed us things that were relevant to us, things that we could understand and relate to. And it, and it sounds like that's what you're doing in, in terms of showing people, okay, this is what it can do and this is what it can't do. This is where it's going to work and this is where it's going to have some other problems here. It's relevant for you. You can relate to it. Take a look. I, I think that's a really clever approach. I want to stay with this sort of theme of understanding AI j just for a second here. If, if you could... Explain one thing to people about AI. What would it be? What, what's the one thing that you find yourself explaining all the time or trying to help people navigate? If I think about AI more generally, particularly if I'm explaining it to people who work with algorithms, you know, GIS algorithms or anything else, the focus of, of machine learning specifically is that instead of a human adjusting the algorithm and, and, and writing a program and saying the algorithm should do this, oh, that didn't work, I'll tweak the algorithm. Instead, what you do is you program it through the data. So you'll, you'll say, look, the model works well. It doesn't work as well in this particular scenario. My solution is not to fiddle with the algorithm. My solution is to label more data in that scenario so that the model can learn from it. And that's, that's a really, really big shift in mindset, particularly for people who worked with algorithms for a long time. But it turns out, based on, you know, if you look at what, what the tech companies have done, data at massive scale with machine learning always beats a, a hand-rolled algorithm. As long as you can, you can get good, clean data, clean label data is the absolute key. And then you can train a model and run that at scale. I really want to thank you for your time. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been more sort of businessy than, than, than what the typical podcast episode is. But I think this is a really important thing to understand. A lot of us are trying to build businesses or involved in businesses. And, and I think you've been really open and honest about talking us through what the business of Nearmap looks like, who the customers are, the relationship between Nearmap and the customers, why you're, you're doing the things that you're doing. And, and I really appreciate that, as well as all the technical understanding that you've given us about your process and, and what it means to be collecting really high resolution aerial imagery and, and then the products that you can build off the back of that. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Is there anywhere the listeners can go if they want to reach out to you, see some of the work that you're doing or, or ask questions? Yeah, so I guess for, for Nearmap as a company, you can we're available on all the social media platforms, things like LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. And you can also register for a free demo of this stuff uh, and, and ask for demonstration at our website, nearmap.com, N-E-A-R-M-A-P.com. And if you want to actually see for yourself, uh, there's some great material there. 
Uh, if you want to get in touch with me personally, uh, usually LinkedIn is the better choice. Uh, you, you can search for me there. I do have a Twitter account. Uh, if that's your thing, you can you can jump on there. But yeah, lo- love to connect and catch up because I, I'm at the point where we've built this stuff. Uh, we know it can do amazing things and we just really want to make connections with people who, who want to do those amazing things. I'll have to get those links off you and I, I will put them in the show notes so the listeners can, can click through from there if they're interested. Thanks again, Michael. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Cheers. Pleasure. It's been fascinating. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Michael Buley, the Senior Director, Comma AI Systems at Nearmap. And I really hope, if you're interested, I hope that you reach out to him. I hope that you connect with him. But I understand it's difficult to reach out to, to people we haven't met yet on the internet and introduce yourself. So if you're looking for a conversation starter, you could say something like, Hey, Michael, I heard you on the Mapscaping podcast and I'd love to connect with you here. If you're looking for something else, maybe another way in, another angle to approach this, try asking a question. Say something like, hey, Michael, why is it that your title is Senior Director, AI Systems? I'm sure either of those two approaches will will lead to some really interesting conversations. So there there were a lot of great takeaways from this episode. But the thing that really stuck out for me was something that Michael said right towards the, the end of our conversation. And it was the idea that you program an algorithm with the data. So if something goes wrong, we don't go in and tweak the algorithm itself. We get more data. We show it more of the kinds of things that we want it to be able to find. But this idea of, of programming it with the data, I think that that was, a, for me anyway, that, that was a fundamental shift to how I think about artificial intelligence. And I think it was just a really elegant way of saying it. So I want to play that clip for you again here, just in case you missed it. If I think about AI more generally, particularly if I'm explaining it to people who work with algorithms, you know, GIS algorithms or anything else, the focus of of machine learning specifically is that instead of a human adjusting the algorithm and, and, and writing a program and saying the algorithm should do this, oh, that didn't work, I'll tweak the algorithm. Instead, what you do is you program it through the data. So you'll you'll say, look, the model works well. It doesn't work as well in this particular scenario. My solution is not to fiddle with the algorithm. My solution is to label more data in that scenario so that the model can learn from it. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in all the way to the end. It's really, really appreciated. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Mapscaping or there'll be a link in the show notes of this podcast episode to where you can catch up with me on LinkedIn. I would love to connect with you on either of those two platforms. And that's it from me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.